Welcome to Brain in a Vat a podcast I host together with my co-host Mark Oppenheimer. I'm a philosopher from South Africa and uh, Mark is an advocate and philosopher. And uh, we have a guest today, an old friend of mine. He previously used to be in South Africa, but now he's in the UK. Uh, Sean Stanley, he's from the University of Bristol and he's busy doing his PhD on the philosophy of biology and the social sciences. Uh, and Sean, uh, as you'll notice uh, viewers and listeners, uh, everyone who comes on the show tells us a thought experiment. So Sean has one ready for us. So Sean, take it away. Uh, thanks very much for having me on your podcast. Um, I do hope you and everyone, your listeners as well. Um, the thought experiment we're going to be looking at is Radical Translation by Willard von Norman Quine. Um, here's the way we, we might want to start. We're to imagine that we've discovered this uh, new tribe of people, and they speak a, a language that, of course, nobody else speaks. We're very curious and we're very interested and we want to try to understand uh, what their language is and how it works and how to relate it to our own language, in this case, English. And so we send over a couple of field linguists, only a couple because funding is very low, and um, we end up there. And what happens is that the field linguists uh, integrate themselves into the community of this, uh, this new society and they try to learn uh, what their words mean. I think here it might be useful just to note that Quine was quite an empiricist. And so for him, the only kind of adequate data or the relevant sort of data would be empirical data. And in this case, it's going to be observing what exactly the natives say and do. So these field linguists are out there and let's follow one of them. They're supposedly on a hunt somewhere and they come across what the field linguist recognizes as a rabbit. And the native shouts out, Gavagai. And they go through the hunt, and this happens a couple of times. And the field linguist starts to believe that actually the word Gavagai might mean here's a rabbit, or it's a rabbit, or, there's a rabbit, or something like that. And so when he's jotting down his notes, he puts down Gavagai, and he puts down it's a rabbit. Now, what Quine suggests to us is that while we may be warranted in saying that the, word, the sentence means something like, it's a rabbit, or there's a rabbit, or something like that. We have no right and no warrant anyway to say that the term refers to the object rabbit, to say that Gavagai denotes a physical rabbit as we understand it. Why is this so? I think it's important to note that Quine believes in something called stimulus meaning. So the stimulus meaning of a given sentence is whatever stimulus you receive that elicits you to say that sentence. So I've got my cell phone. If I say cell phone, you'll say yes. Um, and so for Quine in this thought experiment, the rabbit, or as we would see it, the rabbit is just is the stimulus eliciting the term Gavagai from the natives. But what he notes is that as we look at the stimulus, there's not going to be a difference to be made between defining the term as relating to rabbits or temporal stages of rabbits or undetached rabbit parts because the stimulus that will get you to uh, say yes to any of those things is one and the same thing that we recognize as a rabbit. The other field linguist also had an interesting day and he would have noticed the same thing on his hunt. Now, in principle, Quine tells us, it could be that these guys create their different translation manuals, which are adequate to whatever, they've, whatever information they've given and yet are not the same. For well, the one linguist, let's say, translates Gavagai as rabbit, and the other linguist translates it as undetached rabbit part. 
and there's no way of distinguishing these based on our available data. And what Quine says radically is that there is no fact of the matter regarding which translation is correct. But that's the act of radical translation, which leads us to what he calls the indeterminacy of translation. I thought that's a bit of a fanciful example, and so I wanted to maybe make it a little bit more humorous and controversial and suggest what might happen if you have an ordinary intelligent bloke driving on the radio, or driving in the car rather, listening to his radio, and suddenly he hears a new and alien term, toxic masculinity. <laughs> he keeps hearing this term over and over again, and he's very curious. He wants to know what is toxic masculinity. So he meets up with a group of uh, well-known and uh, well-learned people and provides various examples. You know, is opening the door for women toxic masculinity, is beating them up toxic masculinity, and on and on. And so he formulates some kind of uh, definition for himself anyway. Now, it is possible for two people, at least it's imaginable, for two people to hear this term and now come to, importantly, different understandings of what toxic masculinity is. The parallel here would be that not only would there not be a way of distinguishing uh, who was right or who was wrong, uh, but that no one, neither of them, are right or wrong. They are both adequate translations of the term, even when they disagree. And that is radical translation. No doubt toxic masculinity is a bit more amorphous than rabbits, but I hope the point is a little bit more vivid put that way. Sean, thank you for that. That's a, that's a very vivid way of thinking about this problem. And I think all of us have had the experience of having a conversation with someone um, and feeling like you are terribly misunderstood. Um, now, of course, you know, Oscar Wilde is, is famous for saying that he had a terrible fear of not being misunderstood. Um, but it, it seems that the, the way in which we communicate is going to have a bit of an impact on this. So one of the things that I do to either the great chagrin or delight of my friends is um, send voice notes. And the reason why I send people voice notes is I think that you can convey meaning um, with things besides mere words. I think your tone, the speed at which you say things, the amount of things that you can say in a voice note of a minute uh, will far surpass what you can say in a text. Um, and, you know, the sort of classic case of people misunderstanding each other in a text could be in, you know, the Tinder situation. You know, is this guy into me? Uh, you know, is she flirting with me? Uh, am I being ignored? All the sorts of, you know, missing bits of the meaning that are not there in the mere words. And as you say, what does this word mean? I gather... Quine sort of even looked at some, some further ways in which we could radically um, understand the term Gavagai. He says, imagine that the, the tribe might be very superstitious and that when they see the rabbit, it's an indicator of rain is coming or I'm hungry. Uh, it, it could be quite a range of meanings. But to my mind, it can't mean anything you want. It can't mean pink elephant. Uh, there must be some circumscribed range of what can be translated from it. Uh, and that maybe the more data we get, the more people that we talk to, the more we observe the tribe or the more people we talk to about toxic masculinity, the more we can pin down what is meant by the term. So I, I take it that there are two thoughts there, and I think it's important to distinguish them. On the one hand, there's a question about data gathering and context sensitivity. But on the other hand, there's a question as to the meaning of the term, and whether or not it means a singular thing. To take it a little bit technically, Quine was very concerned with the notion of a proposition as the meaning of a sentence. And what you've just noted, especially with the Tinder example, for example, uh, 
recent example or um, anything else you said, we'd like to know what somebody really means. Uh, what is the proposition that they are trying to express? Quan was skeptical that there were these propositional meanings for a variety of reasons that perhaps we'll get into later or perhaps not. But part of his thought experiment is to cast away the idea that words have an intrinsic meaning, or indeed that our thoughts represent uh, propositions. He wanted to, I suppose, become more attuned to the context sensitivity of meaning because he saw meaning as determined ultimately by the ways in which it's put to use. Uh, words mean, in a way, what we want them to mean because of the way in which we use them. You're right, we can do more data gathering, we can be more context sensitive. But in the case of Gavagai, I don't think he would quite agree because the example we're given is as of a rabbit, what you and I would see as the cute fluffy animal. Um, and in order for us to really test out whether it's rabbit part or rabbit stage or whatever, we have to have adequate ways to translate the way you and I would talk about the part of a rabbit or the subdivision of an object. Now, in doing so, we also translate into the native language. And so there's no easy way of escaping our own conceptual scheme. We're always seeing whatever the native is uh, seeing in our own terms. So here's a, a nice parallel case. Um, so Sean knows that I am a skeptic about the existence of social phenomena. Okay, so I don't believe that social groups exist. I don't believe that social institutions exist. I don't believe that banks exist or money exists. So, right, so I, I wrote a PhD on this and I argued for this claim. And my initial thought experiment was about an alien who's lived alone all his life floating among the stars and one day he comes to earth and he's never encountered another living being. So he's never, he's never had a conversation before, but let's just say that through some kind of Star Trek like mechanism, there is some kind of translation scheme going on between humans and, and aliens or this particular alien. And he comes down and these humans, everything's going fine, right? He, he, everyone seems to understand each other until what happens is the humans start using social terms. So what they do is they point at a piece of paper and they say, this is a banknote. And he says, a what? And they say, That's a, it's, it's a banknote. And he says, I, I, I don't understand. And what's a banknote? And they say, well, you can pay for things with it. He says, remember this alien has only ever lived alone. So he's never understood this idea of social phenomena because he's an individual and he's never met other individuals and there's no social interaction that he's ever had a part of, right? So, so he says, okay, so tell me what this banknote does. So they say, okay, well, it's not just a piece of paper. It's like this extra thing on top of the piece of paper. It's like the social phenomenon of money. And with money, you can exchange things and it, it, it participates in this banking system. And he says, I don't understand what banking system, show me the banking system. And they said, well, we can't really, you know, we can't really show you a banking system because, because well, you, you know, we can't point to it exactly. You know, we, we can point to a bank. So he, they point to a bank and he says, well, I just see a building, right? Why is that a banking system? And they say, well, you know, it participates in an economy. And he says, whoa, whoa, what's an economy, right? So I think, I think it's a very similar problem to the one that you're pointing out to Mark, which is this idea that in order to define which and argue about which of these 
parts of the rabbit it could be. Could it be the foot? Could it be the head of the rabbit? Could it be the arm? Could it be the leg? Could it be a temporal stage of the rabbit? So the rabbit at this time? Could it be the rabbit over its lifetime? Or could it be when someone points at the rabbit, as Mark says, it couldn't mean pink elephant, but maybe it means not a pink elephant, right? So they point at it and they say, Gava guy, which means not a pink elephant. Okay, so, so which of those is it? In order to have that conversation and decide, you've got to refer to other terms, which again, we have to have that conversation about. And so you, you hit this infinite regress of trying to define things in terms of other things, which you just can't define. And you know, in the alien case, you've got this problem of defining social terms in terms of other social terms indefinitely. You can never kind of root them in anything we can totally understand or the alien can totally understand. So we have this parallel problem. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I also wanted to say another angle that one can take. So we've had going to a, a different tribe, we've had the alien coming toward us. Another route that Quine actually does take is to imagine how a child would first learn a language and pick up language. Um, because of course the child doesn't have any, any of our, our words and doesn't know how to use them. And gradually over time, uh, it picks up our words and picks up our ways of, of usages, our ways of using these words. And in time, we imagine trying to understand each other. And all he says on this point is that so long as you and I have a relatively smooth conversation about things that we think should be obvious, this is a pen, this is a piece of paper, and so on, we can imagine that we have a similar conceptual scheme. But he says all there is to having a conceptual scheme like that, a similar one, is that we agree to the same sorts of things. All that one can say about it is that we have the same behavioral dispositions. Because he was also quite a skeptic about, at least an overly uh, um, promiscuous mental uh, picture. He didn't believe, well, he wouldn't say that there were mental states very much. Um, I love that, a promiscuous mental picture. It's a, <laughs> it's a lovely, lovely phrase, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I do try to talk about <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what we're coming up against is a relatively traditional philosophical way of thinking about meaning. Words have a meaning. We can get at them by trying to make precise how we're supposed to use them. And really the messiness of language and concepts like social institutions and so on as we in fact use them. And I think that he was trying to really argue that rather than going the traditional route of trying to define what words really mean in the head or something like that, say rather words mean as much as they mean anything, what we make them mean. So I've got a couple of thoughts on this front. So thinking about Jason's alien case, and I think at some point we'll probably do a bigger episode on this question of social groups. Um, you know, Jason really has dedicated some enormous amount of time to it and there's some lovely thought experiments involving uh, zombies and uh, the movie dark city which must be explored more, more, more properly but it seems like on the one hand with the alien we could say well let's steep you in the world of social groups this is all foreign to you that's why you have no terms of reference to understand it and we might persuade the alien that there are such things as social phenomena and groups and money uh, and that it's a matter of acclimatizing and building up all the reference points the other one is that the alien might persuade us and say, well, all of this stuff is a complete fiction and that there are no such things as money. There are only pieces of paper and some sort of agreement about what they mean. But there's some fact of the matter um, on that question. The other route, as you say, is, well, there is no fact of the matter. Um, there is no essence of a, of a sort of word referring to a thing in the world. It's not like we're discovering what words mean. 
we're collectively agreeing. And we can collectively agree in a manner in which you've got two separate realities. So the example that you gave about the two different um, ethnographers going out into the field and writing down what their understanding is of the native language and coming up with their own translation manuals, we could have the sense in which they're very different from each other and we have no way of adjudicating which one is right. And the question is, is, is are they both equally right, uh, even if they say contradictory things, uh, or is one of them a better reflection of a true reality? Maybe a way of throwing back the question to you is, because uh, what, what Quine would say is, no, there is no fact of the matter, that's it. But a way of throwing back the question would be to ask you, what would it mean for there to be a fact of the matter with respect to the meanings of these words? Uh, or with respect to the way in which the world happens to be. And of course, you'd give your answer, and you'd give your answer with whatever various assumptions you have in your conceptual scheme. And Quine would say, well, that's just your conceptual scheme of it. And I think the issue here is about trying to define a reality or the way the, the world is or the facts of the matter in a way which appears to be conceptually innocent or innocent of the way we already prejudge the world to be. And for somebody like Quine, that was conceptually impossible. You can't do it. But perhaps you have an idea of how it could be done or how it should be done or how we should think about this. Do you have something to say there? Well, it seems like when we misunderstand each other, um, what we're able to do is have this back and forth conversation where we are able to sharpen the meaning of the words and we can sort of do that collectively. Uh, and we get closer and closer and closer to what it is that we mean. Uh, you know, and philosophers kind of do this professionally, right? We sort of throw out a word and someone says, well, that word is ambiguous. It could mean one of three things. Uh, and they set out what those three things are. And the person says, well, actually, I mean thing three and a half, and this is why. You know, and we do that enough, and that sort of gets into literature enough, and it starts to have a sort of you know, significant meaning that we can then refer to without constant explanation. Then one of the things that we do in the show is, um, you know, we're getting on professional philosophers who often use technical jargon, which is uh, difficult for a non-philosopher to sort of come to terms with. And I think what viewers will find is that because there's some explanation of what the term means, they then become aware of what the thing means. It's no longer opaque. Um, and so the claim that things always remain up in the air and always floating just doesn't seem to reconcile with the way we have conversations and the way we digest words. So I'd like to, to reply and say, I'm not sure that you're right about that. Take, for example, some issues in the philosophy of race. In the philosophy of race, what philosophers do, professional philosophers, uh, at least regarding the question as to whether or not races exist, is they try to narrow down what a, what a race is or what it means for there to be races and so on. And they have very elaborate conversations about it. And it, it might appear really as if they are making more precise the term race or its variants. But it's not obvious if that's what they're doing or if rather they're coming to an agreement about how to use certain words. So there's a position in the philosophy of race uh, known as deflationism or racial deflationism, which suggests that the question, are there races or do races exist, is not one which is transparent to a yes or no answer. Rather, it's opaque and you have to ask first, what conception of race do you mean? And to this question, there is no right or wrong answer. There's just a variety of different answers and we pick one for one reason or the other. 
But it seems to me that often in philosophy, often in many different conversations generally, it's not so much that we're uncovering or discovering the meaning of a term or the way we always ought to have been using the term. We're making more precise the way us in this conversation will use the term. And that seems to me to be a quite different sort of thing. So it seems like there's these two different views here, right? So the one view is Mark's view, which is that we generally understand each other. Like we, we kind of get what, what we're saying most of the time. There's a common understanding that evolves over time through submersion or immersion. Uh, we, 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 get, we get the idea um, through repeated exposures to other people using the same terms. But then there's the Quanian view, which you're discussing now, which is that, well, actually that apparent common understanding is a myth, right? What's really going on is that there's some radical misunderstanding, at least possible. It's possible that all the time we are misunderstanding each other. It's also possible we're not, right? It's possible we are getting it. It's possible that we're all the same ethnographer looking at the rabbit, but it's at the same time possible that we're not the same ethnographer and we wouldn't know. And, and that is a very interesting point. I agree. I mean, to, to make a slightly humorous remark, I, I had an experience recently where I was talking to a friend about uh, about chocolate. We were talking about what sort of things make us feel better and so on. And you would, I would have thought that we both had the same understanding of what chocolate was uh, because it's prevalent <laughs> in our society. Everyone knows what it is. And, and normally I take myself to know quite a lot about things. And I, I made a remark, which uh, something like, um, I really can't wait to take a nice a, a bite of nice cold chocolate. And she didn't quite know what I meant. For my whole life, I have been putting chocolate in the fridge, not knowing that that is not what you're meant to be doing. You're not supposed to do that. It does something with the, the fats or something in the, in, the, in the chocolate bar, and it sort of ruins it. I really had no idea. I mean, I don't, I'm not much of a chocolate eater, right? so it wouldn't have occurred to me too often. I put chocolate in the fridge. Right, so apparently- Okay, that's it, I'm out. I'm happy to talk about all sorts of weird and wonderful topics, but I'm not happy to share a platform with you, cold chocolate It's the wrong thing to do, Jason. Apparently, we're not meant to be putting chocolate in the fridge. If you put chocolate in the fridge, you're not eating chocolate. Is that the idea? You not so much just that, but just an implication of having chocolate is that it's the sort of thing which can and ideally ought to go in the fridge when not being eaten. <laughs> very different scheme of what chocolate was. And mm. perfectly smooth conversations for years and years. We're both very fond of each other. And now... <laughs> <laughs> and not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the, this sort of does ignore the... The technical remark that you made, Jason, which is that there may be cases where we can't actually uncover this difference uh, that, that we have. And I think that that is a, an interesting uh, possibility, and perhaps so, especially, uh, especially with regards to perceptual issues. There can be some ways of people looking at the world which may actually be very, very different and which we may never be able to really fully describe. Uh, I mean, there are some people... I think we were talking some time ago, who don't have mental dialogues or monologues in their head. And I really don't know what the world looks like from their point of view. I don't know what decision-making, for example, would look like. Um, and of course, we would probably very easily talk about making choices and decisions. But whatever it looks like to them would be radically different from what it looks like to me. 
I think. So I'll give you an example is that I'm, I'm prosopagnosic, um, which means I cannot recognize faces. Um, so I can recognize people's hair. I can recognize people's speech, the way they sound, the way they dress, the way they walk, uh, their smell. Um, but I cannot recognize their face. And I didn't know that I was prosopagnosic until a year ago. And I'm 35 years old. I just assumed everyone else saw the world the way I do, which is that they recognize people's hair and their, and, and their voices, but there's no way people would recognize each other's faces. I mean, how can that possibly be the case? Everyone has two eyes, well, almost everyone has two eyes, a nose. Sometimes they wear glasses. Glasses are enormously helpful for me. I just assumed everyone recognized each other by their frame, their glasses frame. So when they change their glasses frame, it's a total mystery to me when they take the glasses off, how someone could recognize it, you know? So this is something actually Mark realized about me before I did. And because I, I've known Mark for many years and I'm a very close friend with Mark and I just didn't recognize him in the supermarket. Um, and he, you know, it took me a while once I heard his voice, oh, it's, it's Mark. But he found that really interesting. And I said, no, that's just the way people are, right? And he said, no people do recognize each other's faces. And then I took a bunch of tests and it turns out I'm face blind. But the point is that I had no idea. I had no idea. You can go through life without knowing that you fundamentally perceive the world differently. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating example. Um, I think we do access reality through our own sort of lens, right? And often we're unaware of the fact that we have this unique way of looking at it. Um, and you know, you've given a very stark example that I think a lot of people take for granted that they have this visual way of recognizing and it's not something that you had in mind and you've developed other skills, um, that other people wouldn't have had to develop. So I think your kind of conceptual skills uh, are much sharper because you've had to think conceptually instead of visually. Um, you know, we were sort of spoke to, uh, another philosopher friend recently and you said to him, you know, when you think of utilitarianism, does it bring up an image? And he said, yes, it does. You know, he, he immediately had a whole bunch of vivid images. For you, that was a good example of a conceptual thing that doesn't refer to any particular object in the world. But for him, being a visual person, he could imagine scales or something like that, weighing up you know, uh, consequences. Uh, and that, that's the useful way of understanding terminology. Um, so Sean, I want to ask you this, which is, you know, there's a sort of fashionable postmodern view uh, that, well, there is no truth at all. You know, uh, there is no real reality. There are only a bunch of small T truths. Um, and we all live in our own little bubbles entirely. Um, and, you know, that's all we have. You know, that, that's all it can be. And for anyone to make any claims about there being an actual reality um, is bogus. Um, now, how different is the view that you've espoused from that kind of radical postmodern view? I think it's substantially different, but I think there are also interesting points of similarity. So perhaps the real differences are going to be difference of emphasis. When postmodernists, whenever they are uh, not contradicting themselves, when postmodernists do say things like, there's no objective truth, there are, no, uh, there are no real things out there, there aren't any facts of the matter. I think what they tend to have in mind uh, is a picture of truth and reality and fact uh, which is substantially old-fashioned, uh, a picture of truth and fact and reality from perhaps the 1700s or the 1800s, where in order to know something, one had to know something infallibly. 
and the things that one knew had to be true forevermore. And I think what they often have meant to say is that that kind of knowledge is not attainable for human beings with respect to socially significant uh, phenomena like political issues or moral issues or perhaps economic facts and so on. I think quite less they have wanted to talk about the nature of uh, the natural world or anything like that, um, just because none of the, very few of them would, would find that to be of primary importance. Nevertheless, of course, some people do go a bit crazy and do say things that they probably shouldn't be saying, put them to one side. What Quine would say, however, is that truth, reality, uh, facts are indeed identified and described by science. Um, to better and less degrees. And for him, science ranged from mathematics and physics on the one hand, even to history and economics on the other, um, although these would give us varying degrees of uh, reliability. And so for him to discover the truth about the world is to get ever more accurate ways of predicting the way in which the world is going to end up being in the future. Uh, and so he did definitely believe that there was some objectively valid way of describing truth or rather describing reality, he just wouldn't have thought that there was any philosophically privileged way of accessing that outside of what science can tell us. So for example, often what, what we were talking about earlier with regards to philosophers trying to make more precise their concepts and so on, Quine would see that as more or less a forlorn task. So long as it's not used in science, there's no real way of uh, making it more precise. We need the methods of the empirical sciences. So you can definitely see a connection there where he says, look, science tells us what the world is and we can't think about it otherwise and we can't get out of the conceptual scheme that science gives us. But he definitely has room for facts and truth and so on. What he may not have room for are facts about mental states or facts about the meanings of terms, which of course are very connected with mental states and folk psychology. So that's a place where he definitely was a skeptic. But that doesn't make him very different from people like Daniel Dennett or Paul Churchland, who are also skeptics about those sorts of things. So while there's a relation, I think they are substantially different. So I think it's interesting that you brought up science, Sean. Um, so we've, we've discussed what Quine's, or you've discussed very well, what Quine's views are and how they might be related to the social sciences. So to things like tox toxic masculinity, and in my case, to the alien who comes down and wants to know what money is, right? Um, but I think it's a very interesting question um, how this affects the natural sciences and the biological sciences. And a very interesting example that we're living in right now is this very strong disagreement between two camps of epidemiologists about the effects and the nature of COVID-19. So on the one hand, you get the epidemiologists from Sweden who argue that the mortality rate of COVID-19 is very low. It's about 0.1%. It's very similar to bad flu. Um, and on the other hand, you've got these epidemiologists like Ferguson from the UK, um, who was involved in the publication of the Imperial College Report, who says, no, no, the, the mortality rate is a lot higher than that. It's at least seven to eight times higher than that and possibly higher. And now you've got these two camps, right? So you've got You've got a camp on the one side saying that mortality rate is low with a certain R value, which is its reproduction value. On the other, that's, that's how contagious it is. On the other side, you've got, you've got them saying that the reproduction value is actually much higher. Many more people have the disease than we actually thought. And 
so the mortality rate is much lower. So you've got these two conflicting views, right? And what's so interesting to me is that these two views can coexist, right? So just with the same facts, okay, so the same, the same, the same data has been, they both, they both have access to the same data. They're not in literally different universes. Well, we're going to talk about whether they are, but, but it appears like they're not, right? It appears like both are living on earth in the year 2020 and access the same data. And yet they draw completely different conclusions with different theories. So one interesting question is what Quine would say about this. Would Quine say that one is right and one is wrong? Or would he say it's at least possible that we can't decide? So I think Quine has a very interesting point on the perspective on this point, which is that it is in principle possible that there might be no fact of the matter with respect to which of those different counts was correct. I think in the philosophy of science, this is more commonly known as the underdetermination of theory by data. But the idea is, and this is going to be relatively similar actually to the Gavagai example, that it is possible to have two theories, let's say the theory uh, being, oh, the, the epidemiological models used uh, in Sweden and those used in the UK, it is possible to have two different theories, which are both empirically adequate, that is, they both map onto the facts perfectly well, but are logically incompatible. They don't imply the same sorts of things. For example, they will imply that the mortality rate is going to be much higher or lower. So it is, in principle, possible to have two different theories like this. Um, and for Quine, if indeed all the actual, all the possible data is accounted for, then there would be no empirical way of deciding between the two. He does say that we may be able to use extra empirical detail, for example, favoring simplicity, so those models which made fewer assumptions, um, or maybe some other kind of uh, uh, value. But if we don't want to use those things, or if somehow even in terms of simplicity, they are equally well matched, there would be no empirical way of deciding between them. So that seems to be a situation where you could say, look, I'm agnostic about the truth of this, because we've got two rivaling theories which are incompatible with each other, and we just don't have enough information before us to determine which one is true, versus a claim like they're both true. So here, I guess we will come, up, come across a slight difference. Quine would like to be able to say not merely that he's agnostic between these two different theories, but that if one really wanted to, because all we have to go on is the empirical data, um, we really could take a view of the world according to which one theory was uh, true and the other one wasn't, but we would be equally warranted in saying that the other theory was true and the other one wasn't, and that there's no fact of the matter here. Both of them would adequately describe our um, experiences so far. The question I suppose that we're being faced now is it's a practical question I suppose we'll find out in a couple of weeks, um, is whether or not there is a predictive difference in these models. These models do predict different things. They predict different numbers of deaths uh, and different rates of mortality and how long the virus is going to stay long for and so on. I suppose that we might yet find out which one was more accurate. So you make reference to something which is that the model makes a prediction about the way the world will be and sets itself up for falsifiability in the sense that it's, it makes a claim and it says you can test it. And if it turns out that the claim it makes is false, we can find out that it's false. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about the importance of 
falsifiability and unfalsifiability. So in the philosophy of science, I believe it was Karl Popper who suggested that the true mark of a scientific theory is whether or not it can be empirically falsified. The idea here is that scientific theories ideally should make predictions about the way the world is going to be. And as you know, those predictions uh, should come about thereby giving confirmation to the theory. But if they don't come about, that should be able to falsify the theory and allow us to say of the theory that it was not true. This uh, was an important way of distinguishing between pseudoscience, uh, which often would be, um, would be compatible with falsification, and uh, regular science. So we might, for example, think of um, Marxism as a predictive theory about uh, the class struggle and the way things are going to turn out for the capitalist class. And it predicted, of course, that the capitalist class would fall to the proletariat. Um, it's yet to happen. It hasn't happened for very many years. Uh, although perhaps we're in the end times, who knows? But the point is that there have been very many cases where this theory ended up being false, and yet there are continually Marxists who uh, like to say that it's still going to come. Here's a case of a theory that resists falsification, and this turns the theory into a pseudoscientific one. So for a theory to be falsified is quite important, at least if you are a Popperian uh, about uh, science. However, Quine would be a little bit different. Um, because he would see, he would say that, in principle, it's always possible for a scientific theory, a genuine one, to avoid falsification, because you don't merely have a prediction and then the prediction doesn't happen and then the theory is made false. You have your theory plus all your background assumptions, and then you might have a prediction given all of that. Then, when you see the false, uh, the false prediction. It might be that your theory was wrong or one of your background assumptions was wrong. And there's no logical procedure of selecting which of those to eliminate. So here's a good example. Um, so Kuhn, by the way, talked about this as well. So Kuhn said that, you know, it's not the case that we just falsify theories. You know, suppose um, Newton's theory of, um, of, 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 of motion. His, he had theories of motion that if you throw a ball up at a certain speed, it'll come down at a certain speed at a certain time, right? So suppose in a lab one day, someone throws up the ball and it doesn't come down at the same rate as, as Newton predicts. And he phones up the scientific community and he says, I've just disproved Newton's law of motion, right? I don't know which one it is, if it's the second one or the third one. Or I don't know. But let, I, I, I mean, my science teacher from school would be horrified uh, if, if, if she knew that I'd forgotten which one it was. But, but he phones up the scientific community. He says, I've just disproved Newton's third law of, of motion, right? And they all say, oh, oh okay, okay, we'll, write the, we'll rewrite the textbooks immediately. No, no, they don't say that, right? What they say instead is, oh, there must have been an error, right? You must have mismeasured it. It's not the case that it came down at this new speed that you thought it was. It, you must have mismeasured it. Or it must be the case that there was a breeze going through the room at the time. The point is what we do is rather than falsify a theory up front on the first attempt, we just, you know, the, as you say, the theory resists falsification. So here's, here's how this would work in the COVID case, right? So in the COVID case, suppose it turns out over time that uh, there are fewer deaths than a theory predicts. Then the person who holds the theory could say, but hold on, there were a whole lot of unmeasured deaths. Okay, we only measured the deaths in hospitals, for example. We didn't take into account the deaths at home or we didn't test all the bodies. Or suppose there are more deaths than a the theory suggests there should be. Then they'd say, oh no, the, the deaths were incorrectly classified. It's not the case that these were COVID deaths 
they weren't the direct, COVID wasn't the direct cause of death. It was actually um, heart failure. That was the true cause of death. And so it was incorrect to call it a COVID death. So it seems like the epidemiologist on both sides, on both sides of the debate can get, can, can squirm out of whatever data comes out because they can say, no, that's not real data. That's not, that's not the correct data. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really good point. Although I, I would perhaps want to resist the image of them squirming out of the falsification. I think many of them have good hearts, I imagine. Um, but yeah, you're right. In principle, there are definitely ways of trying to save one's theory from falsification by suggesting that there was some other error uh, in our measurements. Um, on this note, I would suppose that what we're coming up against is a pretty sad picture, one which is disappointing with respect to people who believe in science as a kind of ideal, tell us the truth here and now forevermore, um, artifacts or enterprise. I think what we're seeing, especially with this case of um, these two different epidemiological schools, is that actually science is going to be a little bit messy. And that's something that I think uh, Quine does like to point out. I, maybe ironically, because he also puts so much emphasis on his value. So it seems to me, I, I understand in the early stages when we have rivaling theories, that it's quite hard for us to work out, um, you know, what the truth is of the matter. And we can sort of say, well, is it a matter of saying that there's an evidence problem? Um, is it that our equipment's not working? Those sorts of things. Um, but it seems like there are things we can do to try and ameliorate those difficulties. So one of them might be, for example, to say, well, let's try and make everything equal. So the way that we count our deaths, um, we want to try and make the same. Um, so, for example, we might have to agree on, well, what counts as a COVID-associated death versus, um, you know, a, a direct death. Um, and once we can sort of get all those parameters in place, we can then test our theory in its own right. Um, and it does seem that scientists are able to make some sort of progress, that we theories do evolve. It's not just a matter of, of fashion, how these things go. Yeah, I don't think it's a, it's a matter of fashion. I think that would be maybe putting it a bit too harshly. However, it is a genuine and difficult question with respect to how to measure these sorts of things. So we might, for example, think that the real COVID deaths are those deaths that are directly caused by having COVID-19 virus. Or we might suggest that the real ones are those caused by COVID-19 and or any underlying conditions. Both seem to be valid candidates for counting as COVID deaths. After all, both have COVID-19 as a crucial causal factor. But how do we decide which one? And is there a true one? I guess that's the question. So, so far we've discussed um, what, what the implications for Quine's view are for the social sciences and for the natural sciences. And I'm sure, you know, one can talk about that a lot more, but I'm very curious about kind of a more radical view, which you kind of alluded to as a bit crazy. Um, earlier, uh, and Mark wanted to kind of allude to as crazy as well, which is this view that it's not just um, it's not just our scientific theories or our, our speech that can't be fully pinned down, that can't receive an objective, clear cut. It is the correct translation or the correct theory view, um, but it might be more radical than that. It might be that we are each living in different bubbles 
right? So there are other um, philosophers. Uh, there's a philosopher named Worf. And Worf had a similar um, experiment to, to Quine's, a similar thought experiment, except I think his was based on empirical evidence. So he actually was an ethnographer, if I understand correctly, or he would, was at least inspired by real ethnographers who went, to, who went to Guinea. And in Guinea, they observed a tribe and they observed their language and they found their, their point wasn't so much that each individual term doesn't make sense or each individual term can't be um, perfectly pinned down to a particular object, but that the sentence structure was completely different from English. So in English, most sentences follow a certain structure of subject, object, um, subject, verb, object. So uh, Jason went to the shops. Well, Jason hasn't gone to the shops recently because he's been stuck at home, but Jason went to the shops. So Jason's the subject, went to is the verb and shops is the object. And that's generally how English sentences work. Um, but in Guinea, in this tribe, their sentences didn't work this way. Their sentences were very, very differently constructed. So they found that there wasn't a subject in the sentences, verbs didn't work in the same kind of way, and they didn't act on an object. And in fact, this, their sentence structures were so completely different that according to Worf, it was impossible to translate their sentences adequately into English and vice versa. So it would be impossible to form a, a sort of a, um, a dictionary um, of terms, a translation dictionary. So, so, but he, but he concludes from this something very interesting. He says, the way we perceive the world, and as you say, the way we do our science is through our terminology, through our language, and the way we perceive the world generally. But if they are perceiving the world so completely differently to us, who is to say that they're living in the same world at all? right? And he said, if our thoughts inform, our language informs our thoughts, and if our thoughts are constitutive of reality in some way, then isn't it the case that they are literally living in a different world? And then he said, maybe this isn't at the level of a tribe, or at the level of a language or a culture. Maybe this is at an individual level, that each of us is seeing the world in a completely different way, using different terminology, using different meanings to our terms. And so we literally live in different worlds. Applying it to the COVID case, maybe it's the case that Sweden is now in a different universe, right? So Sweden is in a, in a universe where the virus does have a mortality rate of 0.1%, but the virus has a totally different mortality rate in the UK where the Imperial College paper came out. So it could be the case that the Imperial College paper generated a 0.7 or 0.8% mortality rate, whereas the Swedish epidemiologist, he generated a mortality rate of 0.1%. I think that it's a, it's a very interesting story, and um, I hope you'll indulge me in allowing me to read uh, the small passage from uh, one of Quine's papers, which I think uh, basically agrees with um, the ethnography you, you were uh, telling us about. Um, he says, the case of the linguist and his newly discovered uh, local person finally differs simply in that the linguist has, uh, has to grope for general sentence-to-sentence -sentence correlation that will make the public circumstances of the locals, affirmations and denials match up tolerably with the circumstances of his own. If the linguist fails in this, or has a hard time of it, or succeeds only by dint of an ugly and complex mass of correlations, then he is entitled to say, in the only sense in which one can say it, that his locals, have a very different attitude toward reality from his own. And even so, he cannot coherently suggest what their attitude is. And I think that that very much agrees with um, what Worf was saying. Um, I 
I will take this step by step, um, first with a humorous remark that I think it is less radical to suppose that the United States is currently living a different universe and reality right now, uh, given Donald Trump's very lovely remarks. I found it rather <laughs> to follow. Can you imagine the universe generated by Donald Trump? Right? <laughs> um, but secondly, I'll recount an experience I had, or at least a thought I had some, some years ago. Um, during the, I uh, think the, in the aftermath of the roads must fall and fees must fall protests um, at South African universities. Um, there was an interview being conducted with an old SLC president from uh, UCT. And at the time when he was president, he hadn't protested against uh, Rhodes statue. Uh, and I suppose was asked about whether or not he thought uh, the statue was offensive and so on. And his answer was, and I'm trying to quote him accurately, when I was at UCT, I hadn't realized that it was oppressive. But now I have now come to realize it is oppressive. And I think that there's a non-trivial way in which this person is now occupying a different world. He sees his world as being very different now. He sees his world currently, or presumably at the time of the interview, as one in which that statue has the property of being oppressive. And presumably if he saw it, would have felt whatever uh, oppressive feelings come about with that. But at his, when he was a student, he didn't have those feelings. And I think that, that there's something there, there's something to that. I think many of these remarks are, of course, a little bit insincere, but that's my own sort of take on it. But now, going to whether or not we could be inhabiting different worlds. Yes, I have, I have often thought that I use words sometimes in a rather idiosyncratic way, and often people don't understand what I mean, and it really is that we have to grasp for a translation uh, until we come to agree on some basics. And I don't think it's too radical to suggest that I probably do live in quite a different world to other people. Um, I do perceive things differently. I think things, some things are different for me. Now, finally, to whether or not the UK and Sweden are in different universes, I'm not so sure that we have warrants to say this because it's not clear what the data is suggesting. The data isn't all being collected. We are not yet at a place where we can say whether or not one was more or less accurate. But I suppose if we follow Quine all the way, in principle, yes, it must be possible that they could be radically different universes. I think in practice, it just ends up not being so most of the time. So I've got a couple of, couple of questions. The one is it seems that to me there's a difference between saying that we all perceive the world differently and therefore it feels like we live in different worlds um, as opposed to making the claim that there are actually different worlds. In other words, we could say, well, there's 8 billion people, so therefore there's 8 billion worlds. Okay? Um, and we can mean that either in a sort of poetic sense. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Watch Pulp Fiction. Um, there's this famous sequence where they open up Marcellus Wallace's case and uh, peer inside. A uh, few characters do this, and there's this golden light. And uh, Tarantino was asked, you know, what's inside the case? And he refused to say because he said, you know, it's different depending on who watches it. That everyone is sort of taking their own imaginative um, framework and putting something in the box. So it's something that's valuable to you. So some people will, who treasure money will imagine that it's full of, full of banknotes or gold. You know, others will think that it's Marcellus Wallace's soul. So he's kept the question open 
and allowed us to fill in the blank for ourselves. But that doesn't mean that you've got a Schrodinger's you know, Pulp Fiction case. It's not that there are simultaneously all these objects in there at once. There is some fact of the matter about it. Um, and I think that's what's going on with the world. In other words, it's one thing to say, well, we have these internal thoughts and therefore our internal thoughts make a reality. In other words, we can make it so that the box is you know, filled with a an alive cat or a dead cat. You know, no, we can't. Um, you know, we can only perceive things through our frameworks, but the world is the way it is. I think that it's a good point to distinguish between perception and outward reality. But I think what, what we need to go back to, or at least um, remind ourselves of, is that for Quine, these are going to be cases of empirical equivalence. Right? It's not so much that there can be any number of worlds. It's just that there could be any number of empirically equivalent worlds. So a fanciful example that he gives is the world, as you and I probably would recognize it, and the world of cosmic complements. Um, not so friendly. This, uh, the cosmic complement of my pen here is all of the space-time that exists apart from the space-time occupied by the pen. Um, and there can be also the cosmic complement of my cell phone, the cosmic uh, com complement of my glass of water, now empty, and so on. And of course, all of our laws, laws of nature, laws of physics, can be reinterpreted to apply not to physical objects, but to the cosmic complement of physical objects. And so we can have a radically different ontology, one in which there aren't any things, they're just cosmic complements of things, and can still be, have exactly the same evidence for it. It can be empirically equivalent entirely one-to-one -one with our own. This is radical, but also trivial. It's radical in that it would be weird to think of a world as full of empty spaces bouncing about, but it's trivial in the sense that all he has done is change the what counts as evidence for what in a one-to-one -one structurally isomorphic manner. Now, is that the same thing as saying in Sean's world there are ghosts, in Jason's world there are no ghosts, in Mark's world there is a God and the angels, and these are all perfectly valid? It's not exactly the same thing unless we, in addition, say, and all of these things either make no empirical difference or all amounts to the same empirical difference. So it's that extra step of having different views of the world which are empirically equivalent, which is the importance. And this bringing it back to Gavagai, um, there is, at least for Quine, an empirical equivalence between the rabbit, the rabbit stage, and the undetached rabbit part. Um, because no matter which one you use, so long as you're talking about either of them, you're talking about the same thing or the thing that we would identify as the rabbit. So it's not so much that we could be in any world, but we can definitely inhabit millions of empirically equivalent worlds. So I, I just need to push you on that, Sean. What do you mean yeah. by empirically equivalent? Um, so worlds in which all the observations we would make in whatever terms we would make them would allow each of our theories formulated in whichever terms to remain true so in other words, that there could be a translation without a loss of uh, meaning or a loss of truth value for the theories. So Do you mean that it fits the data equally well? Fits the data equally well. So whatever observational data we would have, as long as our theories, however many of them, would fit that data equally well, then yeah, each of those theories, insofar as there's no way of choosing between them, could count as e being equally valid. And yet they might be different. They might say radically different things about our world. 
One might be about physical objects, the other one might be about their cosmic complements. And so, yeah, between those theories, if there's no way of making a choice, then yeah, they could all be the case. We could all be living in those worlds, but it wouldn't make a real difference because they're empirically equivalent. Well, Sean, it has been fantastic having you on. Um, we could talk about this for a long time, um, and, and I imagine we will, um, but, but we have to come to an end eventually. I mean, perhaps one theory says we have to come to an end eventually, and another says that we don't, but I'm choosing the one that says we do. Um, and Sean, we, we, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. And um, you brought up a lot of very interesting topics, which we would love to do extra shows on in future. So one of them, for example, is on the nature of race. Um, you know, does race exist? And, and Sean is doing a lot of work on this in his PhD, and we'd be very keen to hear more about it. I'd be really happy to, to come back. Thank you so much. It's been a really nice time.